Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study in both First and Second Peter, working through these texts and making application uh, that is not uh, difficult to make within the context of the world in which we live today. Ancient words ever true. You know, if we ever become a ministry not founded on those ancient words or rooted in take your Bibles, please, there is this danger inherent in emphasis of ministry of wandering off into myths and lies and vain philosophies and even into heresy. Peter's writing to the church, first Peter being persecuted and encouraging them to stand firm, and in second Peter, warning them about the inherent dangers, the battle of, of worldviews played out in plain sight, particularly with those false teachers who'd slipped into the church who needed to be readily identified and addressed by the very ancient words delivered once for all for the saints. In second Peter, although a weighty text, there's much to be learned about false teachers and false prophets and false teachings and the impact that it necessarily has within the body of Christ and the world at at large. So if you would please look at chapter 2, and although a lengthy passage of Scripture, I'd like to read through the whole thing this morning. As Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials." and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed and their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots 
and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. And they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's a difficult and devastating and challenging text. Last week, as we delved into it, it was particularly challenging to me because you begin to give real consideration to those that you've known and loved who have, have gone on to eternity, and you're just not sure. And you know the eternal consequence of that reality, and it weighs on your heart, and it weighs on your mind, and and as a pastor, it weighs on you for your congregation, those gathered every Sunday. Do they really know? Do they they really know? As we wrestle with that text, he, he continues to talk about these false teachers and their seductive promises of freedom. The seductive promises that are echoing in, in once evangelical pulpits that says that if the Word of God is outdated, and because of Christ you're given the freedom to do whatever you want in your life, whatever makes you happy, whatever gives you joy, that's what God wants and desires for you. So live your best life now. The emptiness of those words and the danger of that rhetoric cannot be lost on God's people today. We have to sort through this this morass of false teachings and get back to the place where the ancient words that never change and that are always true are the very words that guide our path in an increasingly pagan culture. As Peter writes to those that receive this letter, he is himself weighted down in his heart and mind for the godliness of the people that he writes to, for the purity of faith and doctrine, for the truth that sets one free, for the assurance that comes from knowing Christ as personal Lord and Savior. If you look back to chapter 1 in Second Peter, Peter in, in this parenthetical phrase at the beginning of his letter says, therefore, 
In light of what you need, in light of what it takes to move forward, in, in light of my ministry to you and with you, in light of your calling and election, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. How do they know what He expected of them? He was faithful in the proclamation of truth. We see that all throughout this epistle, all throughout his first letter. Peter never shirked his responsibilities, always speaking clearly and teaching truth and opposing these twisted notions of truth that come from these false teachers. He continues to testify, think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, He realizes He won't always be there for the people. He won't always be there to caution them and to challenge them and, and to point out these false teachers and their false doctrines. So He wanted to be as faithful as He could in the communication of that Word to prepare them for the time of the false teachers. And that time was the time of His writing. And as we move closer to the return of Christ for His church, there are more and more antichrists who pervert the teachings of Scripture and, and through twisted truth lead people astray. So Peter makes this commitment in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things, the things that I taught you, the things that I was faithful in, the truth of the Word of God, this lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. He says, you know the truth, may it set you free. And all these years later, we are struggling with some of the very same things in the context of the church. And leaders need to be as committed as Peter was to, to reminding the people of truth, to remind them and point them back to the book, to do everything in their power as God has called them to, to discipleship and to lead the flock, to show them the way that is clear, and to make every effort to so implanted in the culture that in the absence of that pastor leader, the congregation doesn't forget. He doesn't teach us in the text everything that He had reminded them in every aspect of His teaching, but He does tell us in verse 3 that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's saying, I've tried to open the book and give you everything that pertains to life and godliness from the knowledge of Him who called you to His own glory and excellence, verse 4 of chapter 1, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He doesn't say sinful, sinful desire is gone. It, it won't be until we see Him and become like Him, but He does say you have the truth that will allow you to escape that, will that conform you to the image of Christ, that, that, will, that will sanctify you as partakers of the divine nature. And because of that, he says, verse 5, for that very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have what you need. I have been faithful to the Word I pray that God brings remembrance long after I'm gone and you understand the truth that sets you free. Again, he doesn't give us everything that he'd been through with these people and all those things that he talked about, but implied in that text is that they understood what he was saying. Peter, in essence, wanted to be remembered in the minds of the people long after he was gone that it is the Word of God that lights the way to the future, illuminates false teaching, and brings us to the foot of the cross and into the presence of our Savior, knowing that everything's going to be okay. Ancient words ever true. Albert Moeller, in talking about the conviction to lead, states that the leader should strive to drive the convictions and beliefs so deeply into the culture and ethos of the organization that alteration or abandonment is seen as betrayal. Where do we stand? What are we all about? And how do we call people to remembrance in a positive way after I am gone and don't read anything into that? I'm waiting for the sound of the trumpet. I hope over and over you hear, when confronting dilemmas in your life, take your Bible and turn to please. I hope you're forever haunted with the notion that God has made a way, and His truth shall set you free, and you shall be free indeed. I hope you know and understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the demand of of holiness and separateness and blamelessness and life commitment to the Savior who has rescued you from your sin. That was Peter's desire. I will do everything that I can to build into the lives of you, my people, so that you're ready, so that you know the way, that you understand how to discern these times, and through the words of truth, you understand and are able to identify the false prophets and teachers, and especially what they are teaching. And he says in chapter 2, because they're coming. Verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you, and he's saying they are here now, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. What is he saying about these destructive heresies? He is referencing the very issues or false teachings that they are introducing to the church, even denying the master who bought them, rejecting lordship and bringing upon themselves swift destruction, the consequence of their choices and behavior. And he warns that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then he goes on to speak about these people, 
to speak about their character, to speak about their teaching, to speak about their condemnation, to speak about their infiltration into the church, and to remind these people that they must assess the doctrine of all teachers through the lens of the Scripture. Is this what God has said? Is this what God teaches? Is this of the Lord? And that is why the Word, according to chapter 1, verses 16 and and through 21, is a more sure word of prophecy. There's one thing that will never let us down, and it's not the teachers, it's the book. So you must assess the teachers by the book and you must wrestle with what they're teaching according to the book, and you must know what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, you must be able to discern, to tell the difference, not between right and, and, and wrong, but, but between wrong and almost right. And the false teachers we will find in this text are teachers that are almost right, and they have twisted the truth in such a way to communicate a falsehood Peter is warning the people of. As we again delve into a difficult and challenging passage of Scripture, I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged as we wrestle with the text. Pray with me, please. Father, we again thank You for Your goodness, and we pray that uh, through the ministry of Your Spirit, You will show us the truth, that You will incorporate it into our thinking, that You will give us the wisdom and discernment to sort out that which is right and almost right, wrong and almost right. And you'd give us the ability to address the false teachers of the day directly from the book, to preserve your people and to preserve that truth until the time that we hear the sound of the trumpet. And I pray, Father, that um, none of us would be deceived. I pray that all of us would wrestle with where we stand, be exposed about, about our beliefs, and, and if we stray, brought back to the truth that sets us free indeed. So as we deal with the character and nature of these false teachers, as we deal with the havoc that they wreak in your church, I pray through the Word of God, you would equip us to fight the good fight regardless of the cost. As you preserve your people and reserve those false teachers for their rightful day of destruction. In the midst of all of that, remind us that every human being has an eternal soul. May we not miss the weightiness of this text. May those people gathered in this room not miss the weightiness of that text. You are one of His or you're not. Give us the burden and at the same time the passion to know the difference and to preach that word. Some might be saved and all saved will be glorified through the process of sanctification and the appearing of that great God and Savior. And with John we pray, even so come Lord Jesus. But until that day, find us faithful, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. After he gives illustrations and works down through a, a very challenging, difficult denunciation of those false teachers and a reminder of the eternal judgment that is coming, he says in verse 17 again about these false teachers, 
that these are waterless springs and mist, mist driven by a storm. It was language very familiar for those who he was writing to, those in that particular area. And in that Middle East kind of section of the world, uh, moisture is a, a needed and necessary commodity. It was a very dry and arid kind of pl- place. And, and when he talks about these waterless springs, he is talking about the very essence of what they're saying. They will lead you to believe that uh, to, to apply their, their words, their sensual words, their rejecting kind of words, when, and he'll talk about it in the text, uh, will, will bring you to an oasis. It'll bring you to a place where you're finally free to be you and you're free to control consume uh, whatever it is that drives you and, and free to find fulfillment in this life. But he says, they are waterless springs. It's like traveling through the desert and you're looking for a place of hope and promise and it's an oasis out there, but you get there and there's no water. He said, this is false teachers. They're making a promise and seducing you through those promises, seductive promises that you will be free indeed, but it's bondage. There's no hope and there's no help. They're waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Those clouds roll in from the east in that arid section of the Middle East, and there's a promise of rain, and the hopes of the people get up because of their need for rain, and this east wind comes in and, and blows the storm clouds right out without dropping their moisture. Can you imagine the disappointment in, in a droughted kind of area? It's the same disappointment with these false teachers. They're misdriven by a storm, and it, and it seems refreshing at first, but it is nothing but refreshing, and there are consequences to following their teaching and, and following their behavior. He's making it very known that it's attractive and, and it's perceived as being needful and, and, and rightful until you get there, and it's vacuous and it's empty. It's waterless springs and misdriven by a storm, as opposed to Jesus Himself, who says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What I offer is different from what they offer, and you will never thirst again. But to follow them and their false words will lead you to waterless springs and mists or clouds driven by a storm." The last day of the feast, the great day in John 7, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's an option posed to the recipients of the letter. You can choose the false teachers, or you can choose the way of Christ and the truth of Christ, and, and one will leave you desperate for moisture and one will leave you abounding living water. What was happening in the context of this is these, these spiritual teachers who'd infiltrated the church were promising great freedom in Christ, great fulfillment in Christ. If you follow our words, you'll, you'll find that oasis. You'll, you'll find this overflowing river of water where, where you'll never thirst again. But Peter says, it is not so, and they're leading you astray. And the consequence of that for them The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. The 
consequence is their eternal judgment that is fixed at a fixed point in time in history unknown to us, but it is fixed. It is coming. God will set the crooked straight, and this utter darkness is described in such dire terms in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 8, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, and in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, throw them into the fiery furnace in a place where there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 20, 22, then the king said to the merchants, bind him, or to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the other darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no question as to these false teachers and their eternal condemnation. We wonder why they're getting away with it and how long, O oh Lord, are you going to tolerate this kind of stuff? But we're promised by Peter that there will come destruction and everyone will give an account and the judgment of these false teachers will be real. He then continues, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. When we speak of these, these words of, of folly, one commentator uh, explains them as self-styled novelties and, and, and methods and, and doctrines, this, this self-styled notion of, of a message that is not taken from the truth, but outside of that truth and apart from that truth that leads to a lasciviousness and a freedom that is not described by God nor His people. They promise this freedom through their, through their loud boasts of folly, through these words of, of vanity through all of these promises. Well, God really wants you to be happy and, and, and blessed, and, and in order to do that, you must pursue the passions of life and, and whatever might bring fulfillment to your life. But these passions, he says, are, are sensual passions of the flesh. They're not coming from the Spirit of God. They're coming from the flesh, that sinful makeup of mankind. He talks about the sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. It is one thing to note that those who are living outside of Christ are driven by the sensual passions of the flesh, but he is warning that those who claim to live inside of Christ and be part of Christ cannot be driven by the same wind or driven by that same thirst or driven to the same place where they accept this, this notion the true freedom comes from that libertarian type of, of freedom that says, uh, do whatever makes you happy. It appeals to your sensual passions of your flesh. Uh, John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that all come from within. And we're warned as Christians to run away from those kinds of things. And all of us have been enticed because these sinful desires we still carry around in the flesh waiting for the completion of our salvation, those temptations can be real. Those, those touching points of the false teachers can be appealing. But in the end of the day, it just reveals a waterless spring. There's no hope and no promise. And 
Like there's judgment and great disappointment in that kind of lifestyle. You know, I reflect upon our culture today, and we live in this age of, of, of celebrity, even in the pulpit today. We tend to elevate those who are most passionate and those who are most articulate, those who are most persuasive as being the giants of the faith. The truth of the matter is, the giants of the faith are those who stick to the book. By the way, it is unfathomable and in my mind a sin to be a person of the book and not be passionate about what it says. Pastors must be passionate about the book. It doesn't make them the most articulate. I stumble and stammer often. It doesn't make them the most persuasive. Not a lot of people like what I have to say sometimes. It doesn't make them the person who is sought after as a public speaker in the body of Christ. But what we need to be seeking after is the truth that sets you free, not these celebrity pastors who tell you what you want to hear and draw you into these sensual passions, and in fact, give you, through this seductive promise, this notion that you are free to do whatever you want to do. That is wrong, wrong, and wrong again. Verse 19, they promise freedom. Promise who freedom? Them, those who have perhaps escaped or barely escaped. There's some debate as to who those are. Are those who are just fed up with with the world system and, and understand it's a and it's a waterless spring, and they're looking for something different. Are those people who are, who are barely escaping the new converts who have walked away from that pagan lifestyle through, through a genuine salvation but are susceptible to these persuasive false teachers who will lead them astray? These false teachers are promising freedom, and yet they themselves are slaves of corruption They are tied to their sensual passions of the flesh. That corruption that they are enslaved to is in the text greed, in the text sexual uh, lasciviousness, in the text absolute freedom. Do whatever you want to do. The text tells us that they are captive, slaves of the very corruption they're promising you in their seductive words of freedom. It warns that whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. In this world of evangelicalism where moralistic therapeutic deism has captured the hearts and minds of a generation or two now, there is preaching and context from the pulpit that is all about God wants you to do good things, and He wants you to feel good about what you do. And when you don't, God is always there to call upon to rescue you from your feelings. They have taken the authority out of the gospel. They've made Christianity about moralism, about doing the right things, not about knowing the right person, our Savior, Jesus Christ, but, but, but about doing the right things. And, and this moralism is, is proclaimed in such a way and in the context of freedom that the therapy comes in when you feel in bondage. There are always those false teachers who will make you feel better 
about your conviction and feel better about your lifestyle, feel better about your selfishness instead of call you out on all of that. That is the culture that we live in. And we'll call on God if we need Him. Otherwise, keep your distance. Thank you very much. Is that the gospel? Is that what Peter entrusted to these people? Is that what Peter was communicating to them? He's saying, listen, I want you to know that these false teachers are promising a lot of freedom, but they can't promise what they don't have. They are still in bondage to their sin. They're still being controlled by their fleshly desires. They're still being dominated by this this moralism by their own truth. And they're still bound in their sin. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Whatever dominates and controls us, we are enslaved to. What are those things? Fleshly sensuality, according to these false teachers. And Peter says, watch out. Watch out. You know, when we look at this culture that we live in and even reflect upon evangelicalism today, I think more often than not, we we have this tendency to listen to those most persuasive and the message of, of personal freedom that says that we design our own universe, and we determine what's right and wrong, and we pursue what, what, what makes us happy, and we, we follow after that, which we believe is somehow fulfilling. Rosaria Butterfield, as she was rescued from her lesbianism, talks about sola experientia, and about this notion that what's true is what I say is true, and what's right is what I desire, and, 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 and what is fulfilling is what I deem to be fulfilling to me. But that is a dangerous approach to life. Michael Kruger, in an article, Do We Have a Trustworthy Text, speaks of the internum testimonium. In this Reformed language, he says the internum, te- internum testimonium is not private revelation. It's not sola experientia. You, got, you don't get to decide what the Bible is saying to you. That internal testimony is the powerful work, he says, of the Spirit of God to overcome the noetic effects of sin. What are the noetic effects of sin? The inability to find truth in a sinful, corrupted state. You can't find truth. You can't see truth because sin has affected your thinking, and you are thinking sensually, and you are thinking of your own desires, and you're thinking of what you want out of life, and the Word of God by the Spirit of God, overcomes what we want and what we think and helps us to see what is objectively presented in the Scripture and what God expects and desires of us. These false teachers were still in their sin. We couldn't expect them to change the message because they've been blinded to the truth. Peter, in essence, implies you have not been blinded from that truth. You have the Word and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. You know what is expected of you. You know how to live, and you ought to understand the seductive power and message of freedom. Nathan Buzanetz, and again, another essay on the Word of God, the ground and the pillar of the faith, reminds us that the commitment of early Christians to the paramount authority of Scripture is evidenced in three 
ways. Now, remember the false teachers were saying that authority is rooted in your fleshly desires. Authority is rooted in what, what you think you need. Authority is rooted in what you think you're entitled to. Authority is rooted in what makes you happy. But according to the Scripture, throughout church history, and particularly in the early church, it is pointed out to us in Nathan's writing that the early church was committed to the authority of Scripture in such a way that there was reverence for the Scripture in the church. It wasn't a complimentary book. It wasn't something that we would turn to when there was confusion of all other things. No, there was a reverence, a deep respect for the Word. There was a reliance on Scripture to expose false teachings. We were able to speak up and speak out against those those seductive promises of those who were slaves to corruption, because if you know the truth, you also are able to see what is error. That's where discernment comes from. And third, in that early church, and we seem to have lost many of these today, they regarded the Scripture as more authoritative over all other alleged sources of truth. It was the book, Sola Scriptura that mattered. Suddenly, these false teachers have come in and turned the hearts of the people against or, or maybe just away from the book a little bit to their own felt needs and enticed them with all kinds of promises that you could have your best life now, and God wants you to be happy, and He'll fulfill you all your needs. All you have to do is ask Him. Peter says, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You have to be able to see through that. These are false teachers, you know, and our culture, not to belabor the point, there's this notion of antinomianism and, and legalism. Uh, there's this notion of anti-law that says, uh, once you're saved, you are free in Christ, and you're, you're free to exercise your liberty in a libertarian kind of way, uh, do whatever is fulfilling to you. Is that really what it means to be free in Christ or against the law. Literally, antinomianism is a law unto myself. I'll, I'll, I'll determine what my truth is, and I'll determine what's right and wrong, and nobody can speak into my personal experience and existence. Isn't that the world we're living in? Well, I expect it out there because they're slaves of corruption. Peter's implying there's no room for that in here <laughs> for those who are called to the Savior. You don't get to live out your life that way. You must live in an obedience. You're not a law unto yourself. You are free in Christ, but that freedom implies that you are freed from the power of sin. It has no more dominion over you, so you are free to live as God called you to free uh, to live, and that is living free in His righteousness. Not your sensual passion, not what you want, but His righteousness, and that which truly fulfills us. A lot of times in our circles especially, we want to speak against antinomianism, but we want the pendulum to go to the opposite direction, to, to a legalism that says, here's what God requires of you, and then we drift off into all kinds of craziness like the length of one's hair, the version of Scripture that you carry, and other such things in the body. We can be just as guilty 
of moving away from the righteousness of God in Christ, and, and just as guilty of, of, of following this perceived freedom through, through a law that is extra-biblical in nature, and we're caught in this, this place that we talked in our baptism service two weeks ago. So, what do we do? Do we continue in sin that grace might abound? Can I pursue what makes me happy because God's grace abounds and He's going to give me what makes me happy? God forbid, Paul says. Of course not. And yet at the same time, when we add take away from the Scriptures, the authority becomes ourself, and it ceases to become God. And that grave danger is playing out Peter's writings, particularly that antinomianism, there is no law. Fulfill yourself. But it's coming from men whose hearts and minds have been captured by sin. Verse 20, for if, speaking of these false teachers, they have escaped the defilements of the world through knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If, in fact, these people have expressed some outward religious faith, and in that outward religious faith they are so sincere and relatable, and what they're promising you and the fulfillment of your sensual desires and your best life now having escaped and been exposed to the authority of the Scripture and the message of the apostles, having been clearly shown there's a right way and a a wrong way, and return to that wrong way and be overcome, and they can only be overcome because they're slaves of corruption, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Please know, Peter is not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that you can be enlightened and then someone can turn the lights out. He's talking about the false teachers who are perceived to be enlightened but are still slaves of corruption, caught in their sin, and preaching a false gospel that promises you fleshly this world fulfillment. And that is not the testimony of the Scripture. They will eventually be drawn back from their nominal Christianity into what has entangled them and is, in fact, descriptive of their nature and be overcome because they've seen the truth and been exposed to the truth and sat under the teaching of the truth. Their condemnation is greater. For to him who knows it good doeth it not to him, it, it is sin. You are aware It reminds me of the language that is used early in the text. These false teachers are willful and bold in speaking out against those things of truth. And there's greater judgment for them. One of the things lost on much of modern evangelicalism today is the distinction throughout the whole New Testament between those who are in the church and those who are in Christ. These are the kind of things that sometimes keep me up at night. When you consider all of the people here, 
who find their security and strength from being here and not in Christ. And you think you're okay, but you're not okay. And your attendance here is the extent of your Christianity, a nominal Christianity for sure. And then you go out into this world and you live the very things that they're enticing you to live, this this slave to corruption, your best life now, the passions of this world. This is where you find fulfillment. There's a difference between those in church and those in Christ. And those in Christ overcome the world, according to 1 John chapter 5. Those in Christ practice righteousness. They don't make it a practice of sinning. They don't make it a practice of yielding to these sensual, sinful desires, caving and being catered to by these false teachers. No, they've escaped this world. They have overcome this world. But there are some among us that John describes in this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. They were here. The prior verses in the chapter say we we sat down and ate with them. considered them a part of us. The profession of faith, their their baptism by water, they, they, they seemed to be one of us. But they weren't one of us. They were passionately enslaved to sin and corruption, the defilements of this world. And as they sat under the teaching and probably the conviction that comes from the teaching of the Word of God, it fell on dull or unhearing kind of ears because they weren't part of us. Peter says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. That's not the way of salvation. There's no language in the text anywhere that says that these false teachers were believers and then renounced their belief. They were never believers. They were the ultimate pretenders driven not by the truth and not by the Spirit and not by godliness and righteousness, but the sensual passions of the sinful flesh. Although they knew the way of righteousness, the apostolic message, the sacred faith. And how do we know that these false teachers knew that? Well, that's why we started where we started this morning. Peter said, I know they know because we've been preaching about this for a long time. They know what the truth is, and they've abandoned that truth. They've contemplated the truth, but in a bold, willful kind of way, verse 10, they have rejected that truth and turned away from the truth that could set them free. To their own sensual desires, I can't help but think of Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There are people out there in evangelicalism today promising you things that they have no business promising you. The true teachers are captive to the truth contained in the book 
administered by the Spirit of God that makes us more and more conform to the image of Christ. The false teachers are aware of the book, but they're captured by their slavery to sin. Their noetic minds have been tainted by sin and who have reduced Christianity to this life now. And why did they do that? One of the reasons they covered their tracks is found in chapter 3, where they bring into question, is Jesus really going to return? Are you really accountable to this Jesus? Or is God wanting you to fulfill your, your life today and have your best life now? He's not coming. They've been telling you this, but He's not really coming, so live your best life now. And it is a dangerous trap of the false teachers and those who are evil that sometimes lures away those who are immature in the faith. Captivating sin. And although if their faith is genuine, their lives for eternity will be spared, the consequences of them pursuing the lust of the flesh will be destructive in this lifetime and have an eternal consequence. He describes it in verse 22 this way, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. Anyone with pets understands the proverbs spoken there. There's a popular proverb in the culture, extra-biblical proverb, the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Why does the dog return to its vomit, and why does the sow return to the mire? Because that's who they are. That's who they are. They haven't escaped that. They haven't been rescued from that. They haven't been uh, brought away from that to the righteousness of God in Christ, and they will always return. In this illustration, he speaks of contemptible animals, but remember what he described these false teachers as? Look, look, look back early on in the chapter as he speaks to these false teachers and in verse 12 says, they're irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blasphemous about manners which they are ignorant. Just like these contemptible animals, the pig, and the dog that returns to its vomit, vile creatures in that particular culture are these false teachers. In the end of the day, we must understand that acceptance into the visible church comes from one's profession of faith and obedience in the waters of baptism. But that's not where we find the security of our salvation. And that's not what determines whether or not we find our place in heaven, whether we've been baptized or not. And then, according to Peter, there will be some who slip in whose testimonies seem realistic, whose lifestyles seem to be fulfilled, that, that, that somehow they are living their best life now, and that's enticing to the people of the church. It reminds us that it's empty rhetoric, and although they sound good, and although they look good, and although, although their message is appealing, it is vacuous, a waterless spring. Clouds of mist that are 
they're blown away. It reminds me of the very words of Jesus, where he talks about Pharisees being whitewashed sepulchers. Remember, remember that passage? <laughs> Empty promises and jumping through all of these legalistic kind of hoops, but, but far from God. It was way back in the beginning of my ministry, as far back as uh, my first youth ministry at Ross Corners of Baptist Church, when I preached a message, nice tombstone, still dead. And that is descriptive of these false teachers. It looks so good. It is so attractive. Their words are sweet and, and, and soft, and we're drawn to them. They're all cleaned up on the outside they're still slaves of corruption and dead in their trespass and sin. Peter is giving grave warning against those false teachers, but implied in all of this, I believe, as well, providing great concern for those within the church that they know whom they have believed in and persuaded that he's able to keep that which they've committed unto him against that day. Are you in? What are you following? What are you listening to? What is the message? John MacArthur, in his text, The Inerrant Word, as he, as he wrestles down through the historic wrestling match of Sola Scriptura, reminds us that if you survey all of church history, you will discover an unsettling fact. The most pernicious and spiritually devastating assault on the church has always come from within, via subtle efforts to undermine the authority of Scripture. So, what does Peter say prior to this text? We have a more sure word of prophecy, and then he points out vividly those who were pursuing something different. And he warns of their peril, and he warns his listeners, calling them to return to the truth. As I finish this morning, I'm not sure there is any greater false promise happening in evangelicalism today, and this notion that the sexual ethos of Scripture is outdated, and we live in enlightened times, and it doesn't matter anymore. Morality is malleable. Morality changes with the culture. The Scripture is old-fashioned. Everybody pay attention. When we stop talking about the sanctity of marriage, we're in trouble. When we stop talking about the distinct reality of male and female created he them, we're in trouble. When we stop talking about one man and one woman joined in marriage for the glory of God, we are in trouble. And we have abandoned the first love of the church, and we've moved away from the sexual ethos so clear in Scripture in order to make a way somehow for the world to feel that we are accepting in the church today. All are welcome. You betcha all are welcome, but don't expect us to overlook your sin and to stop telling you the truth so that you understand there is a sexual moral ethos in Scripture, and you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. But here's the greatest blessing. As God's people, we do have the freedom to do what He calls us to do, no longer blinded by sin or captured by sin. We are free to do righteous things, and you are free indeed. Your salvation 
has equipped and enabled you to live soberly and righteous in this present age and hear the hiss of the snake, the false teachers who were saying, yeah, the Bible really doesn't mean that, twisting that truth and leading people astray. I go back to Ephesians. As Paul prays for that church and, and calls them to a lifestyle of holiness and blameless, separate from the world and blameless, not perfect, not perfect at all. And we all stumble and fall. We've fallen for this trap of being blameless from the standpoint of we want to be blameless with the world. We don't want them to think we're misogynistic and patriarchal and judgmental and legalistic. And we're not called to be blameless before the world. We're called to be blameless before our Savior. When it comes to sexual matters, it means we must hold the line no matter what they might say about us, because there will be false teachers. We'll grant permission for these sexual perversion pleasures of the flesh because they're caught in their corruption. So Peter thematically throughout this whole letter is reminding them of the importance of the Word, of knowing that Word, of holding that Word up against the culture at large. In fact, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. We sang this morning, help me to live my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. How do you know the difference? better know the difference, because these false teachers are out there captivating the minds of the immature and giving assurances to the unbeliever that they're okay when they're not okay. And the only way we can be sure is through the truth of the Scripture, the person of our Savior Jesus Christ, and a commitment to live not according to these earthly passions, but according to the book for the glory of of God. May we rise up and be that kind of church in the midst of a generation of false teachers for the glory of God alone. Father, thank you. This trying, difficult, and challenging passage of Scripture. Thank you for the clarity of Peter's teaching.